to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. I'm Lisa. Here with me is Brianna. And yes, we are missing our other co-host, JC. We miss her dearly. She will be back with us. We promise. We miss her as well. And today, we're really excited about this episode. We have been doing a lot of work to get prepared for this episode to make sure that we're doing this uh, as as properly as we can, that we are honoring some of these individuals as best we can. And we are coming out of a big awareness month, right? January, it was human trafficking, it was stalking. We know the beginning of February, we introduced that it's Teen Dating Violence Awareness Month, but I think we're all pretty much aware that it's also Black History Month. And so we have a really, really important episode today because we're going to be going through essentially a timeline that was created by a really fantastic agency, but we're going to be discussing uh, some really, really important Black pioneers of the anti-violence movement. And, um, you know, even up till today, right? Even ultimately how a lot of these individuals, a lot of these occurrences led to the creation of the Me Too movement. And so, yeah, this is going to be a big one. Yeah, and I think our last episode, if you were able to listen to that, we were talking a little bit about how we were able to, you know, secure funding and kind of get our organization started. And that was in the 70s, right? Right. 70s, 80s. And so there's so much work that led up to that. And I think that even though we didn't necessarily intend it as a lead into this episode, I think it really, it works out that, okay, we're here, we have these services, but how did we get here? Who got us here? And we haven't heard, all these stories aren't mainstream stories of how we really got here. So we're wanting to to bring those to light today and really talk about that uh, because these were happening, you know, before the anti-violence and the feminist movements really took off. And so you might recognize some names, you might not, but they were all important in where we are today. So that's why we're going to be talking about that. Yeah, I think, actually, I know one name in particular, I think a lot of our listeners might be really surprised to hear us talking about them today, us, uh, or maybe just hearing a lot of the work this individual did. And we'll, we'll save the surprise for later. We'll get there. Um, but we know that this is really important because like we mentioned, a lot of this history, a lot of these stories, a lot of these key players in the movement were essentially muddled out of history, muddled out of the conversation for lack of any other better term and the most appropriate one, they were whitewashed out of a lot of the conversations. And so I think it's just important to start by saying, I think we're all at this point in time pretty familiar with the Me Too movement in some way. We've at least uh, heard about the hashtag, whether or not maybe we know what the the movement is really all about, right? But many of us are unaware that one of the uh, main founders of the Me Too movement was a, a Black woman. And she's even stated, been interviewed, and, and has quoted to say that it's because of a lot of these individuals that we are going to talk about today, that it's because of them, it's because of their work. That's how the Me Too movement was possible in today's day and age. So really excited to recognize that. And also because we know that a lot of this work, um, it does usually happen in in white middle-class kind of settings, right? And so especially us recognizing that, yes, that is our privilege here, right? That we have a platform and we do this work and fit kind of into that niche, right? So definitely because of that, recognizing our privilege, want to, yeah, make sure we're Mm -hmm. utilizing this Mm -hmm. space to honor those voices, to have these conversations and to teach about this history because it's so important to do that. Absolutely. So just a disclaimer as we get into this, 
we are going to be talking about, you know, we said it's Black History Month, but we're going to specifically be talking about the pioneers of the sexual violence um, and kind of bringing about justice for survivors of sexual violence. And so just a trigger warning for everyone out there, we're going to be talking about some of the cases that are absolutely horrific and can be really hard to hear. And so just make sure you're taking care of yourself throughout this episode as we are going through it. But we are going to start with a, yeah, Lisa mentioned an organization that has a great timeline. Um, Kudos to you, New Jersey Coalition Against Sexual Assault, for having this timeline up and available on your website. So we're starting in the mid-1800s, and we're going to start with Harriet Ann Jacobs. So she was born into slavery. She faced years of harassment and abuse from her white owner. Um, She wanted to marry a free black man. She was banned from it, instead married a white lawyer and ended up having two children with him. He wanted to sell the children into plantation work, which prompted her to flee with her children. She spent seven years in hiding, staying with friends and family before she finally made it up to Philadelphia, uh, where she was able to secure freedom there in Philadelphia. She joined the abolitionist movement, and then she later published a, a memoir to really talk about everything that she experienced, and that was titled Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And that was really talking about her experience with white slave owners and the sexual power that they had over her. She wanted to bring to light the sexual exploitation of not only her, but enslaved women. She just wanted to bring that to light and bring it into these anti-slavery conversations um, because that wasn't something that was totally highlighted or correlated to the anti-slavery movement, but is absolutely a part of it. And I know Lisa's going to dive into that a little bit deeper here. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's really going to be a kind of a reoccurring theme throughout this episode, right? It's kind Mm -hmm. of talking about Mm -hmm. that. Um, And it's so interesting and it's so important to look at in this time i mean we're talking about the 1800s and we're talking about a time when uh yes all these things existed slavery racism uh institutionalized slavery racism oppression and so during this time the courage for her to create a memoir and especially for her to start not only voicing the issues just around slavery and racism which were uh you know deep enough to speak on, but also including the sexual violence component of it. I mean, again, I think just for her to speak out at all, to create a memoir on any of these issues and then really start to build, right? It's not just one issue. Here's really all what's going on Mm -hmm. and here's such an honest Mm -hmm. look. The level of courage, again, because we know that, I mean, awful things were happening at that time and uh, Black people were uh, victims of atrocious violence and really, yeah, were kept silent through a lot of those abusive and violent means, right? So again, hugely important to know that, you know, she was putting this conversation out there. And so we're going to kind of jump back into this timeline. So our next incident, and this was not much longer after the publication of that book. And I will warn you, this is a really, really heavy story. Uh, So this is 1855. And the woman in this story is known only as Celia. 
So uh, Celia in 1855 was 18 years old. She was enslaved for uh, a number of years, if not her whole life up to that point. So she had suffered, I mean, years and years of horrific sexual abuse at the hands of her white owner. And so in one, uh, in one instance, in one kind of desperate attempt to secure her safety, to keep abuse from happening to her, there was an altercation. She ended up killing her white slave owner. And I mean, of course, uh, right away, she's arrested, she's in court. And at that time, the Missouri court, they determined that anyone of color, especially women, did not have the right to self-defense against sexual violence. And so this is a really important, it's awful, we know that, but it's a really important um, message to think about because this really starts a deeper topic in our heads, right? Because what they're saying is, as a black woman at that time, you had no right to defend yourself. And really, it's because of the idea, right, that we know that was inherent at the time with slavery and with racism, that your body, as especially a black woman, did not belong to you. It belonged to somebody else. And so we see the system of oppression, right? We see how sexual violence becomes such a big part of this um oppression and this racism, right? It really became kind of an interworking part of that because, you know, you don't have power over your own body and, you know, we can own you, but also here's all these other ways, right? We can take power away from your body as well. And so again, we'll kind of keep coming back to this. Um, it's mm -hmm. again, just a really important <laughs> kind of reoccurring theme here. And so um, after the court decided that really there's no right for self-defense, this was essentially tried as a murder. She was found guilty um, and she was convicted and put to death for, um, for that occurrence and for that happening. And although in that situation, we can say it's uh, horribly, horribly unjust. I don't think horribly is even an appropriate word. Um, atrociously unjust what happened. Uh, this court case did essentially laid the groundwork for some legal things to kind of start happening. So uh, one thing that came out of this was the legal foundation for unjust treatment of enslaved victims of sexual violence, which I know is a mouthful. Uh, but this kind of legal entity, right, this legal consideration, this coalition came out of this case. And although it did not bring Celia justice, although spoiler alert, we won't really see it bring justice for some of the stories we have next. It's just important going from the idea of you have no right to defend yourself because your body's not theirs. And now there's at least some consideration that we need to have equal or just treatment in place. And so again, it doesn't seem, I mean, especially now, right? This seems like nothing. Um, but at that time, that was a tiny bit, but I mean, that was, that was groundwork and that was progress at that time for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we're kind of, as we tell these stories, feeling a little bit like we're building steps. It doesn't really always feel like they lead to something, but they are steps that we see along the way. And I think over a great amount of time, we can look back and say they lead to something, but it is really discouraging going through these that you see the outcome and you're like, but there was this, but it did nothing. So our next one we're going to chat about is the Memphis riot, um, but specifically the Memphis riot survivors. So this wasn't too long after Celia's case. This is now in 1866. 
These riots occurred over a course of two days in Memphis, Tennessee. There was a violent mob of white men who rampaged black neighborhoods. Uh, throughout the time that these riots were going on, property was burned down or destroyed. Um, so the numbers that happened out of that, 46 people were, more, were murdered, and that's 46 black people were murdered. Uh, there were hundreds injured, and then at least five women came forward disclosing that they were sexually assaulted during the attacks. I think that's important to have that at least in there because we had five who came forward, but this is happening so early on that we have no idea how many were actually included in that. You know, it can be easier to count the buildings destroyed and the murders and even the injured than it is to count the sexual assaults because that, requires a disclosure on that person and I would imagine that so many were not wanting to disclose at that time so at least five women came forward and how can you blame them right thinking about the cases I mean if you see other people that are just told that I mean we really don't care to protect you then yeah Mm -hmm. what do you it's a point in coming forward right right So after these riots, they actually caught national attention and it led to a congressional investigation. And these five women who came forward with their disclosures, they were the first known testimonies to Congress on sexual assault. Now, I didn't know that before doing all the research on this. I will totally admit that. And so I'm guessing some listeners didn't realize that either, that the first women to ever testify about sexual assault to Congress were these five black women. In a time that was so volatile as well, right? In a time that yeah. did protect them, for them to be the first to hold that space. It really is. Yeah, what an incredible, yeah. incredible moment. Yeah, they were given that space to testify Um, so here's an example of where, oh my gosh, we made this step. This is great. We feel like we're making progress. I mean, looking back at it, you know, we can feel like, oh, okay. So they got justice, right? No, um, not a single man was arrested or charged with the violence that occurred despite them being given that space and that opportunity to share their story so bravely they were not given justice for it. I think about too, I mean, of course the conversation around sexual violence at that time, you know, the idea of sexual violence, the the perhaps normalcy of sexual violence that was going on at the time. But I, I think about how that moment must have felt for people right, sitting in right. that courtroom. This is the first time this has ever happened. And this is the first time that you have people in this court of law they're getting up and eloquently speaking, but telling a story of being assaulted and those people having to sit there and, and relive that or hear those details. And I think that must have been such a compelling moment. That must have been what a groundbreaking moment, right? Again, yeah, and still, right? No matter how compelling it was, no matter how groundbreaking, again, this is pre-civil rights movement, right? And so at that time, there was a lot to protect people that were not people of color, you know, white men uh, had a lot of power. And again, we're kind of just continually uncovering that, right? And so moving on to our next moment, right? We have 
this court case, we have these five, you know, first testimonies that are happening, nothing comes out of it. But, you know, it does, it does push others to start really advocating. And so although we don't perhaps see, uh, you know, the, maybe the charges being handed out or the justice being served, we see others that are starting to kind of take this torch of action that we need we have not been getting action and we're, we are now starting to demand it, right? Cause we deserve it. And so there's a lot of activists coming out. And so one important activist at this time is Ida B. Wells. She is seeing all these things happen in real time, or she's hearing the history of some of these, you know, maybe a little bit earlier court cases happening. And she really has been working in her journalism centered and focused on basically spreading the ideas and the issues, right? Not only of just the inherent racism, but also the intersectionality or how racism impacts sexual violence or maybe how those things play uh, to one another, right? How maybe this mm-hmm. racism allows the sexual violence to exist or and thinking about gender within all of that. So this is incredible because before, um, I mean, at this time, not even before, but at this time, the word intersectionality did not exist. And we're going to get there uh, a few decades later down the timeline. But the work that she was doing was was incredible. And she was speaking on an international scale with her journalism. So really telling the stories, a lot of her investigative work, a lot of her journalism, not only, you know, centering around that intersectionality, but a lot of the times she would investigate uh, lynchings of black men and would then talk about how the stereotypes and how the idea and the oppression of them being less than, of course, leads to lynching, right? Or murdering these individuals or that it's okay. So she was writing mm-hmm. about oppression. She was writing about intersectionality. She was really advocating, right? On behalf of understanding and uncovering that these systems are not right and this is how it's happening and, and kind of getting others to recognize that, that this was really a power imbalance. It comes from racism, but it allows us to do all these awful, awful things. And so she's just, again, another really incredible individual that regardless of the fear that was definitely put in place, right? Whether it was in your face being threatened if you were someone of color that was perhaps speaking on these issues or even that low threshold of threat that you know, if I'm speaking on these stories, maybe there's a good chance I will uh, be assaulted for this, uh, be injured, right? Maybe I'll be attacked or maybe, you know, someone will threaten my life if I continue to speak. The fact that we have individuals, especially like Ida B. Wells, again, going international, really talking about these things happening. Really incredible, really incredible pioneer at the time. And not only her journalism, but Ida went on to found not only the first black women's organization, including the National Association of Colored Women, she also went on to found the NAACP. So yes, we, I think, are all pretty familiar with the NAACP at this point, but I think not a lot of us are aware of a lot of the work in sexual violence that the NAACP was doing for years. And there, again, we mentioned this at the beginning, we have kind of someone, we think you're going to be really surprised that they were involved with the uh, sexual violence movement, the anti-sexual violence movement. And their involvement was also through NAACP. So a really Mm -hmm. cool part of, again, a certain individual and this organization's history that we weren't really aware of. And so we're going to see here how the NAACP really started being a really big key player in a lot of these sexual assault investigations. 
Right. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Ida B. Wells was in researching about her, it seemed that she would kind of take what was currently going on at the time, whatever, you know, kind of fell in her lap, if you will. And she ran with that and then something else would happen and she'd run with that. And then something else would happen. And she'd go with that. I think a lot of times in society, we have an expectation of you have a career, you have a direction and you kind of stick with it. But she was like, no, this is needed now. So I'm going to go this direction and now this is needed. And so I'm going to go that other direction. And I just think that's something that we can all really learn from is that, you know, you stay with where it's going and where you're needed with your skills that you have. So I think that was, that was a really great thing that I, I took from her, her story. Yeah. So moving on into uh, another story that involves a name we I think you might recognize. Um, this occurred in 1944 and this is the story of Reese Taylor. So she was walking home from an event at church with a friend and when she was abducted at gunpoint by six white men, they put her into this old Chevy, blindfolded her, and took her to a field where she was sexually assaulted. The men all threatened her um, during the attack and afterwards that she would be killed if she told anyone about this. You know, they made it very clear, all six of them... This will happen if you tell people. So we've heard in cases before where, you know, there hasn't been disclosures and maybe at this point you're thinking, okay, so she didn't tell anybody, right? Nope. She told everyone. <laughs> she went and she did not stay silent. She reported it to the police. And even though she could identify um, she did identify one of her perpetrators. She actually knew two of them, but she identified one and then that one ended up giving up the five others. And so they, these six men ended up being identified and they all gave up confessions. You know, it wasn't even like, okay, we're going to investigate and see. They gave confessions and no one was arrested. The case came before a grand jury later that year, um, so another trial to see if we can get justice for Reese Taylor. But again, none of the men who assaulted Reese were prosecuted. And it was during this time, enter Rosa Parks. Here she is. She. She launched the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor. And the purpose of that was to bring attention to and investigate this case. Rosa Parks was sent by the NAACP, who she was affiliated with at the time, to do investigations. And so Rosa visited Reese to do interviews. So while she was there with Reese, she actually was forced out of town, was asked not very politely to leave, and she did. However, she came back. <laughs> she came back knowing the danger that would likely face her in coming back, but this work was so important to her and she knew that she needed to continue on this case. And so she 
came back. Um, and it started uh, this committee, the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice for Mrs. Reese Taylor, it started this larger conversation about people demanding justice. And eventually, uh, following Mrs. Reese Taylor's case, they ended up dropping off that part of the name because nothing unfortunately happened with her case, but it still stood as the Alabama Committee for Equal Justice uh, that was now helping to look into these sexual assault cases. And that was, that was Rosa Parks that was spearheading that. Um, Reese Taylor received ongoing threats. She was attacked, including a firebomb um, in her home. There was so much that she faced, you know, you have that horrible event happen to you and then you just have this, this re-triggering and this, there's so much more violence that she faced after that as well. Um, but luckily it did not silence her from continuing to speak out against what happened. And she continued to tell her story and to try to pursue justice. So that was in 1944. In 2011, okay, not a mathematician. You guys can do the math on that, however many years a between long, that is. Long time. Wait, later. wait, 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 too long. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just put it that way. Way too the, late. Yeah. The state of Alabama finally issued a resolution to her in 2011. Um, she was actually 97 at the time. She did pass later that year, but was alive for this to happen. And just one of the lines from that resolution from the state of Alabama, I'll read it here exactly as it reads. So it says, acknowledge the lack of prosecution for the crimes committed against Reese Taylor by the government of the state of Alabama, that we declare such failure to act was and is morally abhorrent and repugnant, and that we do hereby express profound regret for the role played. Oh, I mean, talk about oh. too little, way too little, way, 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 way too late, right? Right, right, right. Oh, and it's so sad that, so this was 2011, so Mrs. Reese Taylor was still alive at the time, and mm -hmm. we will make sure to mention this as well. This is all knowledge coming out of the, uh, the documentary on Reese Taylor, other articles, that response, that um, kind of like resolution letter sent to Miss Reese Taylor really only came out of a lot of public heat and pressure at that time. Her documentary, I believe had come out, her story was out there. And of course, now that, you know, in 2011 right when we don't live in the same kind of racial climate right we can definitely say there's still a lot of issues but we don't live in that same racial climate so of course we hear that story today and, and so many were like nothing happened wait nothing mm -hmm. still happened mm -hmm. wait mm -hmm. she still never got an apology and so that pressure really led to it and i think that also really speaks to also you know what was really happening at the time and why individuals like Ida B. Wells was so important was because telling the story was a huge part of the battle, right? For black people. Think about, you know, newspapers being uh, white owned newspapers, any kind of media, you know, that's going to yeah, be filtered yeah. through the lens of whiteness at that time, if you're in charge. So when you start to have journalism, when you start to 
have black people, people of color, any marginalized communities that are able to start narrating their own stories and making sure they're not getting swept under the rug, that we're not just tossing this out. It's one of the most important elements because it really does. We, we see, again, some of these cases, and it's so infuriating to see the lack of court uh, or legal justice that's done. Mm -hmm. But we do see that once people are able to hear what's going on, they begin to mobilize. And again, that's not bringing the justice that we want to see, but it's doing something along the way, right? It's, it's creating an effort. It's creating mobilization. It's creating a passion for a lot of these issues, which may not have existed unless the stories were told. And so another really big um, important part of this piece, right, is that media. But sadly, again, this kind of forced apology comes out in 2011. Rosa Parks passed away 2005. Oh, again, although this was way too little and way too late, uh, it would have been maybe a great thing for Rosa to see, you know, being involved in this case so heavily, maybe uh, for her to kind of see this come to fruition, right? There's some resolution might have been a nice thing for Rosa to see. But I'm, I'm so happy. And that, of course, Rosa Parks was the name we've been sharing from the beginning. You know, may, maybe some of you are not familiar at all with the work she's done in this movement. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so incredible because, I mean, we really know her. Rosa Parks is this highlight figure, you know, of the civil rights movement, of the bus boycott. She's the one that did not give up her seat and sparked this whole movement. And I think a lot of people see, you know, some of, especially those historic images are being taken off the bus and they maybe see this fresh activist in the field. She had been in the anti-violence movement for over 12 years before that bus incident. So 12 years before we see this historic footage, before we really start to interpret her maybe as a household name or, you know, Mm -hmm. a historical figure. Yeah, we did not even know the decade, longer than a decade of work that she's been doing before that, that's led her up to this point. And it's been primarily in anti-sexual violence work. She's been doing the majority of the investigations for the NAACP when it comes to sexual assault accusations. So of course, one of her uh, one of her duties in that role was to support victims of sexual violence, like Miss Reese Taylor and others that were assaulted. Another part of her work, as well, was investigating cases where Black men were accused. We know again, especially with the racial climate at that time, a lot of the time there was a false accusations against Black men. So Rosa was in charge of investigating those as well. And so, yeah, it's, it's just incredible. You know, she was a veteran by that point that we kind of got familiar with her or, you know, that we again are recognizing her. She had been doing such important work for years. And another kind of interesting fact is that Rosa was really compelled to do anti-violence work because she uh, disclosed, and this was, you know, years after it happened, but she disclosed later on that she was a victim of an attempted rape when she was 18. And and I take this out of a, uh, her letter when she discloses it. She quoted feeling the feeling of being trapped and helpless and also being sickened by the anger and the disgust. Because at that time, again, it was you know an attempt, but we know and recognize that attempted rape is just as damaging and important as rape itself. So it's not that one is any less mm-hmm. than the other. But in this moment, um, that idea that power and balance and that idea that she couldn't do anything about it. And so, yeah, that really propelled her, right, to do this work. Uh, and she was not only involved heavily 
as a fierce advocate for Reese Taylor, but she went on to be an advocate for many, many other investigations, but specifically for our next story as well on the timeline. Yep, moving on up into 1949. So this is only five years after Reese Taylor's case. This is Gertrude Perkins was walking home <clears throat> when she was abducted and raped by, <clears throat> excuse me, two Montgomery police officers. They then dumped her at a bus station, kind of a deserted bus station, and warned her to keep quiet. And although this is a few aspects that are similar to Reese Taylor's case, uh, like Reese Taylor, Gertrude did not stay silent. However, despite her speaking up, telling her story, she unfortunately never received any justice either. And this leads us into a little bit of a, a side topic. It's, it's all related, but um, one of the one of the links that was provided in some of the research that we were doing, um, specifically from that New Jersey Coalition site, it's actually in the Rosa Parks section. Um, oh, and we'll include the link to this New Jersey Coalition site so that you can see all of this and see all of the great side links that it gives you as well. But this states that to this day, sexual misconduct by police is the second most common form of police misconduct. And this, of course, disproportionately affects women of color. So when I say it's got links in it, it's one of those where it's an article and you can see that the text is a different color because it leads you off to a link. So of course I got curious and clicked on one of the links and I'll admit I was kind of, uh, I wasn't sure what date this was going to be. You know, it said to this day, but you think of when we're talking about things in this conduct or in this uh, context, you think like, oh yeah, but that was in the past, right? Uh, no. So this is from July, 2018. The title of the article is NYPD police officers union wants to keep sexual misconduct under wraps. So we're here in 2021, that was 2018. So three years ago, this is something that we're still looking at that is still very disproportionately affecting black women. And so as we go through this timeline, you know, it's not all in the past that we're talking about. A lot of this has carried over and there's so much more work to be done. And we highlight these pioneers and we would not be where we are today without them. But I think it's also important to note that we have a lot of work that still needs to be done. Um, Rosa Parks, she formed the Citizens Committee for Gertrude Perkins. So again, another committee that was formed specifically for a case. Um, similar to what happened in Racy Taylor's case. And this did receive attention in regard to policemen committing sexual violence against marginalized women. Um, however, the most impactful was, um, so those, sorry, those policemen were ultimately protected through their role and white privilege, even though there was so much public outcry and they never suffered consequences. So again, here's our Rosa Parks. She's 
forming this committee. She gets this public outcry. You know, she's getting this movement going and there's no justice. It's so discouraging to see happen over and over again. And I know for me personally, this is something that fuels me to keep fighting in this work because we're not that far away from this happening. You know, we talked about 1949. That can seem like a long time ago, but really when you look at the the timeline and the history of things, that was really not that long ago. And we're obviously seeing it still today. So there's a lot of work still to be done. Absolutely. And it really is. It's such an infuriating theme that's just constantly echoed that things occur. We can all, I think anyone can look and objectively say that that is wrong, that it's not Mm -hmm. okay, that, you know, this is a, this is a crime, but in the same, at the same time to just have someone say, ah, but sorry, (laughs) we're not going to do anything about it. Nah. Right. Not a big deal. Like, oh, it's so, it really is so infuriating. Again, it speaks to, we are um, definitely not cured of racism in our culture or oppression. Those things a million percent over do exist still. But again, in that time, right, the infuriating nature of that time, the blatant racism that drove Mm -hmm. decision-making, that drove law, that drove, uh, I won't say justice, I'll say the lack of justice. It really is. It's so hard. But again, I guess empowering in the way, right? We look at it, we look at the way in which this started conversations, the way in which, again, I just, you have to, you have to give it up for these women that were not only um, living in one of the harshest racial climates they could have ever been in, right? Just your survival at any moment was important to you. And it was, you know, you're in danger at any point in time. and also through that time as well, then you have a crime committed against you where you know you're not going to be believed or you know your justice mm-hmm. system doesn't care to protect you. And then the threat's put on you, but you then still go out and speak on what happened and advocate. Right. Like to me, right. I don't I don't know that kind of courage. I really don't, you know, like right. I don't feel personally like I've had to ever access again. And I can speak directly to my privilege on that, right. Being white and not mm-hmm. living a lot of those experiences. But yeah, again, that's just a lot of these things. It's, it's incredible just to see happening as mad as we can be that nothing, um, again, justice wise came out of it. It's just, it could be really empowering also, right. For us to, to look at that. Yeah. And drive the work that we do, right. To make sure that we're having episodes like this and including these stories or just highlighting right or or just being more empowered with what we do at work and so we have moving on to our timeline we have and of course as well this timeline is not like all the incidents that happened with people of color no (laughs) these are a small snapshot of course we don't know how many other events occurred i don't think there's a way again with disclosures Mm -hmm. with people not disclosing at that time for every good just reason uh but again you know this is just a small snapshot but this is our last stop on this particular timeline so this is an event um pretty much from 1989 to 1991. And so even though that the story and case kind of revolves around one person, we're going to introduce two different people here. So the first person we're going to introduce, um, and this is 1989. uh, Her name is Kimberly Crenshaw. She's an attorney. She's a professor at UCLA. She is the individual that 
coined uh, the concept and the term intersectionality and was able to speak about the ways in which, especially with violence and oppression in our culture, right, things have an impact. So going back to the beginning, right, looking at Ida B. Wells, her journalism, she was doing this without naming intersectionality, but she was talking about the impact of your race and your gender and then, you know, sexual violence, right, maybe playing a part of that because of your race and your gender. So here's Kimberly Crenshaw. Here's her putting um, a name to this term and making something that we can educate others on, we can speak to, and that we understand, right? We can understand this dynamic. So it's 1991, and the Anita Hill case is coming to light. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, and this is probably a more popular one uh, because it was only 1991. So Anita Hill was a extremely educated um, empowered woman. She was an attorney. Um, she essentially had worked at the U.S. Department of Education for a number of years. During the time she worked there, she was sexually harassed by a man named Clarence Thomas. And at the time, you know, of course, Anita didn't really disclose or say anything, really didn't feel like she could do anything. But it wasn't until a few years later, now Clarence Thomas is being nominated to the Supreme Court. And I mean, I think especially we just not very long ago had the Brett Kavanaugh case, right? And had Dr. Ford coming forward and saying, you know, uh, I just can't let this man be elected to this high honor, knowing these things he had done to me, right? And the level of what this person might be capable of. So the Anita Hill case got brought up and echoed a lot within the Brett Kavanaugh case because it was very similar. So again, here comes Clarence Thomas. He's going to be nominated to the Supreme Court. And at this time, Anita Hill in her own mind, just says and thinks, you know, I can't let this happen. You know, I'm going to let people know that this is what he did to me. This is awful. And it went on for, uh, you know, a long time. And I don't want this person to just kind of have this role of substantial power, right, when they have an ability to maybe victimize others. So Kimberly Crenshaw worked closely with Anita Hill, really uh, mentored her, supported her throughout the case. Some of these um, testimonies and the hearings uh, that came out of Anita Hill's case, I mean, they're pretty famous even today. You can hear a lot of that testimony. But unfortunately, after testimony, after, you know, speaking on what had happened and what had occurred, having this term intersectionality, being able to bring that, introduce it and say, look, right, like, here's what's happening as women of color just get victimized more often. It's a part of the system of oppression. Even with that, uh, Clarence Thomas was elected to the Supreme Court. So again, kind of that we see steps being taken ultimately the justice really just does not in any way match up and this is really interesting because we look back on our timeline right we think about celia's case a hundred years before we think about celia going to court she you know again out of her own safety protecting herself self-defense uh ended up killing her owner at the time and the court basically just saying that we don't protect black women and this Anita Hill case was a hundred years later and the court echoed that same sentiment, right? That regardless of the evidence you put in front of us, regardless of even giving us this new understanding, this new term and how to view this issue, we still are gonna err on the side of really not providing you justice or protecting you. And yeah, again, that's a hundred years later and this is still, again, a sentiment, right? Or a way that court is getting carried out or actions are not being carried out. And it's really important for us to acknowledge that and look at that.
Yeah, and I I think throughout this conversation, I just keep reflecting back on, you know, our our definite privilege in being here and being able to share these stories. I just want to highlight that again that we can kind of chat about these and while knowing it's something that if it was going on today, we wouldn't have to be experiencing. I uh, just wanted to, again, touch on that, that we absolutely recognize that and we are, are learning so much from doing this research and uh, from all the work that these people have done. We have so much respect for it and can learn so much from how much they really gave and how much they weren't given the space to advocate for other people, but they made the space. And that was just incredible to learn more about. I mean, carved out their own space, right? And Mm -hmm. in the most unsafe conditions possible. And yeah, it's, it's ultimately so important for, yes, us to recognize our privilege. And I think it's interesting because a lot of our listeners who have listened to previous episodes, they know Brianna and I are both survivors of different types of abuse. And yes, we can understand being women who are survivors and that feeling, but we in no way, even though, again, we are, we are empathetic. We, we want to um, try to understand, but there's no way for us as white women, right. To internalize or really understand the experience of not only being survivors, but being survivors who are also facing oppression because I'm black, right. Or I'm a person of color. I'm in any marginalized Mm -hmm. population. That's just not an experience that we have right on top of our survivorship. And so recognizing that, yeah, that, does exist for others, not only your survivorship, but then your other issues maybe you face because maybe you are, right? And another system of oppression where you're being treated differently or or looked down upon. And so extremely important. Um, and it makes their work, yeah, just so much more impressive and compelling. Again, not only having to show up and have a space to do that work, but having to carve out in, again, the most unsafe conditions possible, carve that space out to begin mm-hmm. doing that work is really, right. really right. amazing. And so huge shout out again to Tarana Burke, one of the founders of the Me Too movement. Again, she's quoted that without Reese Taylor, without Rosa Parks, without Ida B. Wells, without Kimberly Crenshaw, the Me Too movement would not exist today. And so again, if you're familiar with the Me Too movement, and you've been listening and you're still here listening, I am so thrilled that now you can put all those pieces together. Now we can really properly honor a lot of individuals who deserve to have their names spoken, um, deserve to have their stories out there and deserve to have recognition for being part of a movement that could not exist today without them, right? And to think about people literally try to write them out of history. And so- Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's why Bree and I were really excited to have this episode today. Of course, again, this is a tiny snapshot. There's so many more things. Uh, we will link everything below. I will make sure that that timeline's included. I will make sure I'll go ahead and link a few other interesting articles on Ida B. Wells, on Rosa, the NAACP, uh, other important figures at the time. Mm-hmm. So you can continue to do this research and do this work. It's so again, really disheartening a lot of it, right? And I think we can feel that from the conversation today, but it's so important to recognize history and not let these names or this history get lost. And so again, we'll have it all linked to encourage you to do that work. But on that note, it's been a hard conversation today, right? To say the least. I know just writing this and kind of being 
in my head about this for the last week, two weeks or so, right? Getting ready to do this episode, doing a little bit more research. It's really put me into a place of feeling uh, frustrated, right? Feeling a lot of different feelings come up talking about this. So I'm sure our listeners who are wonderful enough to, again, still be here with us, you might have some some heavy hearted feelings. So we're going to, of course, meditate take out our session the way that we always do. Make sure that you can just breathe, calm some of that anxiety, take a little bit of that heaviness off your chest right after this conversation. And so I will ask you um, to just get yourself situated. If you're able to take on this meditation, just get yourself into a comfortable seated position. Find a space where uh, you can fully relax. Just let yourself sink into your chair. And I'll just do our simple meditation today, nothing crazy, but I invite you to start taking your breath in through your nose and out through your mouth. Deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Take a deep breath in, gently close your eyes and exhale. Deep breath in. With every exhale, just let your body sink a little deeper into your chair. Let every inhale just bring relaxation to your body. Send your breath to any parts of your body that you may feel tension. And on your exhale, just sink deeper. Start to find a rhythm in your breathing. Count in your head. Count your inhales, same length as your exhales. And notice any distractions, any tension in your body, any racing thoughts. Just let it all float past you. Your focus on attention by counting your breath in and out. Keep counting in your head. Focus on the rise and fall of your chest when you breathe in and out.
On your next inhale, I want you to take a slow breath in for a count of four. Hold it for four. Slow exhale. Do the same thing, slow breath in for four counts. Hold for four counts. Slow exhale for four counts. Do this one last time. Inhale, take a big breath in and fill your lungs. Hold and exhale. One more big breath in. Hold and exhale. And slowly return back to your normal breathing. Start to lightly wiggle your fingers and toes. Wiggle around your wrists, ankles, arms and legs. A little wiggle in your seat. Get your blood flowing. Roll your neck from shoulder to shoulder. Paddle your feet on the ground. Stretch overhead if you want. Lovely. Yep, almost fell asleep again. <laughs> Done my job. <laughs> yes. So I hope, like Bree, that really calmed and centered the rest of our listeners. So on on that note, um, we want to thank everyone for being here today. Again, this was just the beginning of a conversation that, first of all, uh, desperately needs to be had and deserves all the space in the world to have it. So we encourage you, again, follow the links below. You can do a lot of your own research on this as well. Um, really look into some of these individuals and, again, beyond, because we know that this timeline did not capture everything. We absolutely know that's not the case here. And so we want to thank you. Thank you for being part of this conversation. Again, this was, um, yeah, it's a big step, right, in the world of the stories we hear and a lot of this trying to be swept under the rug. You being on this podcast, you listening in, you hearing these stories to the end, it's it's important. It's important work to be done, right? To just honor, again, these individuals, the stories that they're told. And so on that note, we appreciate you. We hope to see you all in our next episode. And we want to thank you for being part of this one conversation. 